You remember the Runs Linux segment on the Linux Action Show? Oh, yeah, of course. Check out this Runs Linux for this week. NASA. NASA runs Linux. You know, there's this that recent epic landing on Mars. Heck, yeah. And on the live stream, I got a screen cap of it here, I noticed up on the projector a kind of older plasma desktop running VNC looking into another Unix box to pull the images down live from the landing. All on Linux. You've got Linux, Linux, and then I think that might be some old Unix, possibly. Chris, when you're landing on another world, you don't have time for proprietary software. That's right. you got to make sure it works right. And uh, VNC is the old go-to remote control, even, even for NASA. <laughs> this is Linux Unplugged, episode 277 for November 27th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that might be slightly distracted by that keyboard over there that's got a Linux box built into it. My name's Chris. My name is Wes, and I know I am very distracted. It's the keyboardio. It's a wood keyboard with a pretty eclectic layout and Arduino boards built into both halves of it, connected via an Ethernet cable. And then USB-C. Back to the machine. And it's all programming. You got LED lights. You could do RGB if you want to be an elite gamer. Uh, so Wes is going to be putzing with that project. But that's actually not what we're here to talk about today. No, no. We're going to do a bunch of community news. A nice batch. Not too much, but a good solid batch. Wimpy whetted my appetite recently with some really cool home server setup talk. So we'll uh, deep dive with Mr. Wimpress on that. And then after the KDE Corner, we're going to talk about this proposal by the Fedora Project. After Fedora 30... They want to punt an entire release, take a year, and focus on themselves, and wait for 31. Now, that's a massive proposal with huge ramifications and kind of a precarious timing with the other news out there. So we're going to bring on the project lead, Matthew Miller, to explain what's going on, what the objective is, what might go wrong, and what stage this proposal is in. We're going to get the whole scoop from it. That's like everything. He's going to be on in a little bit to tell us what's going on there. And then we'll wrap it up with some uh, picks, some interesting year-end news, including like when we're doing our special for predictions and stuff like that. We got all that nailed down. And then for one last time, hopefully, I'll tell you my current Dropbox hack, which those bastards at Dropbox. I sat down on a machine upstairs and started popping up that error message. I just got so disappointed. EXT4. Oh, so frustrating. You know what? Let's focus on something positive. Let's focus on that virtual lug. Time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Good morning. Hello. 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 Hello, everybody. Good to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. We're going to have a great show today. And I wanted to start uh, with a, a topic that just won't go away. And Wes, you set it up so beautifully the other day in our chat. You said we're we're in the ascendancy of these projects, and so we are not fully realizing all of the long-term ramifications. And what you were talking about is how everything has its own package manager right now. And we're going to get to a news story that just happened here, but we've talked about this before. Docker Hub, uh, flat pack apps that have been packaged uh, with old libraries or elementary apps that aren't properly supported and distributed as flat packs or, or snaps that had a crypto miner in them. Or uh, The most recent one that I think has gotten a lot of attention is this Node.js package hack. So, so for some context, a widely used NPM package was discovered to have a dependency with an encrypted payload in it, which then tried to steal... Bitcoins. Of course. I mean, that's what you you do. (laughs) That's always what they try to steal. Um, But when you start reading through the community reaction, there is tremendous outrage at the developer for uh, essentially screwing millions of people. (laughs) People are very, very angry. And they have... um, not really a lot of ground to stand on because if you look at any open source software, it generally comes with it's provided as is, use at your own risk. I think that's what makes it so interesting is because none of these are hard and fast rules. It's all about community norms and what we expect from software. And these days, yeah. like everything you build is going to be pulling in, you know, six, ten more libraries that you, you know, you're linking features and adding value on top. And that's great. But we do have to question like what are how do we be responsible about this? And Yes, it's not your responsibility necessarily to do any of these things if you're an open source project maintainer, but if you're interested in doing that well, what are some guidelines that can help you do yes. that? How do you, and when you're ready to, to not do it anymore, which is totally reasonable, how do you transfer ownership to somebody, in a reasonable way? Right, so it doesn't just die and become vulnerable. But, I mean, how deep does this rabbit hole go, though? Because you've got, you've got a distribution package 
repository and maintainers. Then you've got things that have their own package managers built into them. Lots of software does. Then you've got containers that have hubs that people have automatically submitted software to. Then you also just have rando drive-by websites. So like this, this rabbit hole is never ending to me. And we're just building on top of it. Like building a package manager now is like the, it's like the keen thing that's the bee's knees that everybody's doing. And it seems like we aren't appreciating the amount of work it takes to sustain these systems. The more packages a system has, the bigger it becomes, then it becomes a lot. It's, it's like it's on a Richter scale. Like it becomes way more work to actually maintain it all. Maybe we need a uh, minor free uh, certification process. There are three layers to this, right? There's the ethical component, there is the trust component, and then there is, you know, the legal one. Ethically, wrong. Just throw it away. Uh, trust, well, people trusted the uh, repository where things were sorted out. So the responsibility really gets attributed to them, in my perspective, not so much the original developer, because transfer of ownership is not immediate transfer of access to a repository. When I think of that rabbit hole, it seems insurmountable to solve at the management layer. In fact, it seems like ultimately the responsibility is on the sysadmin who installed that on his own server or the end user who decided to install that desktop software. I kind of like to get your perspective on this, Brent. Do you, I'm not saying I audit all of the things I install, but don't you think ultimately if you installed something that stole your Bitcoin wallet, it's your fault? Yeah, I think that is the case. And we have to be careful with the end user perspective there, uh, is that not all of our end users are educated enough to know to look at all of that stuff or, or pay that much attention, right? Like Linux, we sometimes tout as really quite safe for end users. But in this case, you know, they may not even know what they're installing in the background. So yeah, absolutely. Especially as a sysadmin, you should feel responsible for that. But as a, an end user, you need to kind of have your eye out for that kind of stuff too. I'm on Arch. And as everyone knows, the AUR is great and can have some pitfalls, right, in that respect. So I think, yeah, it is ultimately responsible for what you're installing. But I will say there's even a bigger catch that is often missed with this one, which is companies that tend to use uh, open source packages, they generally will have some sort of artifactory or, you know, internal repository that they clone. If they can't just easily pick up from the original source, they will stop contributing back the little they already contribute back because at this point the risk is too high. So I, I would refrain from trying to to put these things into this perspective of, hey, let's just the user is responsible because a company really doesn't want to do that all the time because then it's just worth it to pay the developer to write it in the first place and we're the ones to lose. So I really think that we we want to take ownership and responsibility for it while it's still convenient for us to have that responsibility. I think one of the problems that we we see here is in our quest for more software availability, we've made it easier to get software and that can make like with the AUR, it can mean that you can rebuild things from Git really easily and get the latest security patches, or things can never get updated. But I think some systems are doing it in a little bit different because you'll never be able to solve or at least doesn't seem likely we'll solve the problem of people just didn't update all their dependencies the right way anytime soon. But maybe another approach is limiting the damage that can be done, like with snaps, right, Wimpy? Yeah, this is an interesting conversation. So when we think back to 1970s Unix, everything's a string. Do one job and do it well. And pipes, these were profound ideas that have stood the test of time and lasted for 40 plus years. But back then, when Unix was being created, there were a handful of people that were building the system. And there was implicit trust that existed between all of those people that were working on the Unix derivatives. And you can even trace that back to the level of trust that existed in the networking tools back then. You know, everything worked on a trust relationship. Everybody knew who everybody else was. Now, when you roll forward... 40, 50 years, that's not the case anymore. There are tens of millions of developers just on GitHub, and there are other places that you can you know, manage your source code in the world today. There are millions upon millions upon millions of projects in GitHub and other public source code repositories. You, as a sysadmin or a DevOps engineer or a developer, 
who are pulling in components. You may just pull in component foo, but component foo may have dependencies upon dozens and dozens and dozens of other libraries. You can't trust all of that other stuff. And this is where snaps are a reimagining of, you know, old 1970s AT&T Unix, where you take all of those things, you put them in a container that can't tread on the host operating system or the other applications that are installed in that way, because we can't guarantee these trust relationships that used to exist in the in the distribution models and the creation of, you know, the distributions in their earliest forms anymore. It's a new era. And uh, it seems like something that's actually, now that we're this far into it, has been a long time coming. So, and there's and then there's also, obviously, as technology gets better, there's other ways to solve this. Like, almost every major repository is built in some sort of basic scanning for malware or trust verification system of publishers. Like, there's, there's other ways of tackling this at the distribution end as well. Somebody could build a machine learning model which is good at smashing crypto miners or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I bet you it's in the works. That seems like something that would get a lot of hype. Crypto miners by themselves are not illegitimate, though. True, true. Yeah, basically scan for anything that's not specifically flagged as a crypto miner. Like when you upload your package, you get a flag that says, this is a crypto miner. <laughs> and it would come up on when you install the package saying, hey, this is a crypto miner. Are you okay with that? You're like, yes, I know. I want to get all the Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, <clears throat> let's not talk about Bitcoin right now. It makes me sad. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to also discuss this story that's coming out of the United Space Alliance. When's the last time we got to do that? Too long. Too long, I say. May have been never on this show, actually. Uh, we're going to take a page from SciByte here for a moment. This is the group that manages the computers aboard the International Space Station, and they work with NASA. And they just recently announced that the Windows XP computers aboard the International Space Station have been switched to GNU slash Linux. No way. Wow. Isn't that awesome? That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, they write, we migrated key functions from Windows to Linux because we needed an operating system that was... Reliable? Stable and reliable. Of course. Yep, yep. In specific, the dozens of laptops will make the change to... Can you guess which version of Debian? Oh, it's Debian. I was going to say Fedora 29, but no, that wouldn't make make sense. (laughs) No, they ought to wait around for 30. It's going to be supported for a while. Okay, so Debian, Debian 8, let's say? That's, yeah, that's give me reasonable. the number, because I don't remember all the Debian names off the top of my head all the time. So, uh, all right, okay, let's see if anybody can, see if you can guess. What version of Debian? It's going to be up in space for a long time, so you're going to want something probably recent, right? Something current and well-supported. Yeah, you have security updates for going yeah. forward. It's an old one. It is, you're right, it is. All right, okay. <laughs> It is Debian 6. The laptops will join many other systems aboard the ISS that already run various flavors of Linux. These ones will be running Debian 6. Um, There's also Red Hat up there, as you would imagine, and some scientific Linux, as you probably guessed already. And after the transition, there won't be a single computer of the ISS that runs Windows anymore. It was kind of interesting that another reason they liked was that uh, they wanted in-house control, which is a thing we talk about, but you don't always actually see people using it, right? But right. here, here they can just they can they can mess things up as much as they want to and uh, <laughs> customize it. Yeah, well, you know, they got a virus uh, back in two thousand and eight. I guess they they blame it on a Russian cosmonaut. Those Russians and their viruses brought, brought about a worm. I guess technically not a virus, which then spread to the other laptops. Um, and they think that switching to Linux will essentially immunize them from that particular type of attack in the future. <laughs> I mean, I guess against casual mal- malware, not perhaps a uh, more malicious attack. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't think any of us are too surprised by this, are we? Because Linux is the scientific community's operating system of choice. We know that the large Hadron Collider uh, is used by Linux. It uses Linux and uses KDE Plasma. Uh, NASA and SpaceX ground stations run Linux. DNA sequencing labs, technicians use Linux. It's pretty much anybody that has a, a serious of, job. A lot of, yeah, a lot of... Um, uh, astronomy software and yeah. packages for analyzing images you get from telescopes that's already running linux too so did yeah, you, did you see this, of the course did you see this uh, bit on here about the uh, the robot they got a robot there's, up there too. Ro- oh. there's in other oh. news yeah the first humanoid robot in space robonaut 2 also runs linux is due for an upgrade uh, so they got robonaut and robonaut 2 is also going to be like they got two robots but only one of them is in production um, and the one that's up there now, the one that's being reassembled and built, has been delivered in pieces. The uh, last big pieces actually went up in 2011. Right now it's just a torso with two arms. But uh, they also have legs that they're going to be giving it soon and a battery pack that will be delivered soon. 
And then eventually it'll be able to perform menial tasks like vacuuming, changing the, the filters, the air filters, and possibly dangerous tasks like during spacewalks. Space Butler. You saw it here first, folks. Run on Linux, Wes. How about that? Hmm? Um, you know, if you if you like running Linux, if uh, friends, if you enjoy the GNU slash Linux operating system, and you like talking to people who also enjoy that operating system, then I invite you out to Linux Fest Northwest coming up April twenty sixth and the twenty eighth in Bellingham, Washington, the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and it's at the Bellingham Technical College, which. Is a great campus because they got all kinds of things like robotics there, and they have gaming labs there, and they just so it's great for kids too. If you've got if you've got little ones, they have things for little ones to do. They have like a gaming room that is a ton of fun that my my young ones like, and there is uh, tons of talks to attend. And of course, we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth, and we we're even considering doing a little bit more this year. Maybe having a room where we're giving talks all day and things oh. like that. It's all in the works. It's all early days. But I wanted to mention it now while we're still in 2018. So maybe. It could possibly be on your radar because we're hoping to have a hell of a party. It's uh, it's a it's been a good year for us. We've had uh, we have we have things to celebrate. A year like no other. Not only not only have we joined Linux Academy and uh, now we have like full time people on our team, um, and we have uh, <clears throat> we have new hosts in the works that are going to be able to join us there that you haven't even heard about yet. It's been a really good year for us, and uh, we're gonna have a great party. Plus, it's the twentieth. Linux Fest Northwest, 20 years. 20 years of Linux Fest Northwest, wow. So they have a few things, a few surprises in the works to celebrate that. And they're doing a big past, present, and future theme to kind of bring it all together. All this kind of sounds like if, you, uh, you know, if you've if you been wanting to go to one of these, you want to go to a conference this is and hang out with us or other JP fans, yeah, this is the one. Yeah, this is the one. And we're last year, we did a barbecue outside of Lady Jupes. We had a couple of barbecues going, plus we had the kitchen inside Lady Jupes going. Just a tremendous party that was a huge success. And uh, so I think we're going to do it again. I haven't talked to the folks at System76 yet, but I know they thought it was a huge success. Too. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll be back. And if not, hey, we've got we've got the crew. I mean, yeah, maybe maybe we'll be lucky enough to see Brent there joining us. I can carry two barbecues on Lady Jupes alone. So I'm just saying. Yeah, Brent, are you planning to make it back this year? I'm definitely going. I think after the experience last year and just the huge connection to the JB community here over that that this year, um, there's no reason not to awesome. go, really, even awesome. if it's across across the continent, really. I'm feeling like this is going to be one of our big years. I'm really excited. Uh, I've talked to Noah. He's going to be there, too. He'll be at the booth, and uh, we'll be doing live shows, and it's just, oh, it's going to be fun. I'm JB just, family blowout. It's going to be a JB family blowout. So if you want to come out and... Uh, so far, it even sounds like I've talked Joe into coming out and doing a live Linux action that news. Mysterious, yep, mysterious Joe. The first live Linux action news we'll have ever done live at Linux Fest Northwest, and the first time we've ever seen each other in person. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, just alone, that's going to be great. So if you can make it, it's one to go to. Anybody else in the mumble room? Anybody? Anybody in particular? Might might make it for the 20th anniversary, yes, oh, thinking be, about it. Gosh, that'd be great. That would be wild. That would be so great. Oh. It would be great to have a, a LUP barbecue at the same time, I think. Absolutely. Just a crazy suggestion. A barbecue, uh, we almost always uh, have an after party at the studio. Although this year I, was, I have a restaurant in mind to go, like, just because the crowd's getting bigger. Um, and the studio is not that big, so yeah. But we almost always have an after party. Um, well, we have we try to have an after party each night, so it gets a little ridiculous because you got Friday night, which is setup night, and then the you need to blow off some steam after that. And the, the actual fest is Saturday and Sunday, so then you got things to do at Saturday night and Sunday night, and then it's like Sunday, you're all done with the fest, you've done your live Linux action news. Well, now you want to go have a party, so then there's another party, and they're not like crazy like blowout parties. Well. Really Actually, like sometimes, them, yeah. sometimes they are. Woo-wee. It just depends on the crowd every year. But uh, I'd just love to have you there. And you can check out and get more information at linuxfestnorthwest.org. Also, as we do this recording, there's still 65 days left to submit papers. I'm encouraging our team, <clears throat> Wes, uh, and others on our team to submit papers and for talks um, because I think uh, we have a lot to contribute that uh, we don't normally do those things. But because we're going to have such a big crew, we'll have plenty of coverage at the booth and stuff so we can do that kind of thing this year. Wow. Very excited about that. Well, Wimpy, I really, really do hope you make it. Uh, That would be one of the highlights of the year, I think. Um, But while I've got your ear, you really kind of piqued my interest on a recent episode of Ubuntu Podcast, big fan, as you know. And you, uh, you touched on a new setup using some software that I have heard mentioned several times by the audience, SnapRaid, and a couple of other projects to really build yourself what sounds like 
Oh, I mean, this might, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds like a, a free open source Drobo, like a home-built Drobo in a way. Yeah, I think uh, uh, a comparison with a Drobo is fair, yes. Okay, so this obviously sounds very tempting. I just had another drive die in my FreeNAS server. I don't oh. know why this happens to me. I, and I, I don't know, I don't, I don't grok in FreeNAS's UI how I'm supposed to solve it. I don't get it. So then I get... It's funny, I had the same, I just bought two replacement drives on Black Friday. So I'm, I'm going to be <sighs> rebuilding an array myself. I didn't even notice until yesterday, so I didn't even think to look. Ugh. So I, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of sick and tired of this. It's not that FreeNAS is bad. I love FreeNAS. But when I have disk die on me, I, I feel like I can never clear the error messages out of FreeNAS for the rest of the life of that install. And it's just because I'm an idiot because Alan sits down and he has it figured out in two seconds. So it's, it's my fault. But I have been thinking about if this was a Linux-based system, I could pr- probably just take care of it. And it's because it's this quasi-appliance without a full user land running on top of a kernel and system tools that I am not as familiar with that I feel like my data is kind of in peril. Um, so help me, Wimpy1. You're my only hope. Is this something where I you could actually hack it on the command line? You can SSH into your box and mess around with stuff and you're not going to break it? Like, t- Explain this setup to me and how it all kind of fits together. Okay, so yes is the answer to that question. Okay. What I have started with is just an install of Ubuntu Server 1804.1. So just straight up Ubuntu Server. So yes, you can SSH into it and you can do all of the management from that point onwards just over SSH. With no fancy file system set up beforehand or anything like that? Correct. Yeah, so this is where SnapRaid is interesting. So let's let's just start this by saying ZFS is all well and good and it has its place in the world, but um, I've specifically chosen these tools of SnapRaid and MergerFS because I am addressing specific issues that home users would have, not enterprises with terabytes and terabytes of storage. So is an example of that like mis- mismatched disks or what's an example of that? Yeah, so examples of that would be with SnapRaid, you can use mismatched sizes of disks. You don't have to create the array up front. You can use your existing disks with your existing data on it and add those into a SnapRaid configuration without any format reformatting or anything like that. Mm. So in terms of the home user for budgeting, it's very flexible. Um, and for my um, position, I lost some disks a year ago in last year's summer due to heat. So I'm very sensitive to disks running and spinning and generating heat. And the way that SnapRaid works is you... So, for example, I have four drives in one of my arrays. Um, I uh, just formatted all of them with... Well, one of them I formatted with XFS, and the other three I formatted with EXT4. So you can choose what file system you want to put on the disks you're going to use in your SnapRaid array. Ah. The way that SnapRaid works is that you just copy files onto a file system. So nothing clever, nothing fancy. But consequently, a file exists on one of the disks in your array. An array is like in air quotes now because it's not like a RAID array where the whole thing is a logical volume. Which means when this is actually in use, only one disk is spinning. And I have SmartMon power down the disks after 10 minutes of activity. So this keeps the disks cool, it keeps the power down, and it keeps the noise down. So these are all huh. like important factors for home users. Right, that makes sense. Instead of have, focusing on like a constantly available high-performance NAS yeah. system, this is more of like a, here's my backup server, and I just want to keep things right. safe. It doesn't have to be right. ready to respond at all moments. I mean, it's sitting there yeah. idle a, the, a large chunk of the day. That's Indeed. A, that's a good point. So SnapRaid is designed for media servers where the files on the media server are changing infrequently. So let's just talk about SnapRaid for a minute. I had four drives. I formatted one with XFS, the other three with EXT4. We'll get get on <laughs> to why I did that in just a moment, because okay. I'm sure that will come as a surprise to you. I would have thought of an XFS myself, but, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. A no, gentleman's file we'll system. Get, we'll get to it. You'll, okay. you'll understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And the X, the drive that I formatted XFS, uh, that I used as my parity drive. So within the SnapRaid oh. configuration, I say this disk mounted in this location is used for parity. Oh, huh. The other three drives that I formatted, I say these disks are data disks and they're each mounted in their own discrete location. So one is called HDD1, another is HDD2, another is HDD3. So, and that's basically the SnapRaid configuration. That's all it cares about, where the disks are, which one has got parity, which one's got data, and then you also specify um, the, the path to what are called content files, and these are the files that store the hashes. So the, the checksums and hashes for the files. And this is where SnapRaid has a, a, a great property because it offers you um, the same kind of bit rot protection that ZFS offers you. With checksums? With checksums, uh-huh. indeed. And it can, it can recover from um, files where the data has become corrupt over time and repair that data from the parity and the hashes. You probably have heard a lot of people say this sounds similar to Unraid since you talked about it on the Ubuntu podcast. It is similar to Unraid. It's far more robust than Unraid and in free. my experience. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, and Unraid is more than just you know a disk manager now. It does a whole lot more than that. Is it a web UI to manage it? What's the interface? It's just a config file ah. and a command line application called SnapRaid. Easy. So once I've created those that configuration, that configuration defines my array. And now I can just copy some files onto those disks willy-nilly. So I copied some files onto hard disk 1, I copied some onto hard disk 2, and some onto hard disk 3. And then I ran the command snapraid sync, and that then builds the parity file. So it inspects every file on the in in the array, builds the parity file, and builds the uh, tables of hashes for all of the files that are in there. And at that point, my data is now protected. So I have a parity drive, which means one of my disks can fail, and I will be able to recover. And I have hashes of all of my data. So if there's any bit rot, I can also recover any data that's become corrupt over time. Hmm. Now, explain to me, and because I feel like I'm missing one piece, is I understand that MergerFS is also part of this. And I know MergerFS is a union file system. Yes. Uh, but I'm not clear how that's fitting in with your setup. Right. Okay. Well, I'll get to that in just one okay. moment because yeah, there's enough. one other important, important feature of SnapRaid. I, you have to run the sync command manually to rebuild your parity. Okay. Unlike, say, something like ZFS where that's happening on the fly. And this is where SnapRaid now has backup kind of functions. So in the intervening periods where I haven't run a sync, if I delete files or um, overwrite files I didn't mean to, I can now go onto my volume and I can say SnapRaid fix and I can undelete the files and recover them from the parity that I have. So in the times between the syncs being run, it operates as a backup tool, and you can pull your, pull files out of the backup. That could be nice in a small office environment too. Right? Yeah. Or at home, when you know, if I do a sync every week, I've got a week's grace that I may have deleted something accidentally, and I can go and recover it without having to, you know, go to actual backups. <laughs> so, because now the files are spread across three disks, that's a bit inconvenient. Um, because now you have to know that this disk has got these files in it and this disk has got these files in it and this disk has got these files in it. So then I've installed some software called MergerFS uh, and that uses Fuse and uh, it uses um, wildcards in your FS tab. So you can say, go and mount all of my HDD star under slash media slash MergerFS and now under that directory, I have a union of those three disks presented. Ah. And MergerFS then has some strategies about how files, if you say copy a file to the union, how it decides where to place those files. So I've got it in a mode where it will say, does the directory, the endpoint directory that I'm being asked to put this file in already exist? If it does, put it on the disk that already has that directory on it. 
Sure. Or you can say, just scatter them willy-nilly. You know, there's a whole different bunch of, you know, write strategies you can use there. But because I want to have disks generally, only one disk spinning at a time, I have it say, where does this data already exist? Let's write it there. And then I've got a configuration option that says, and if there is not enough space on that actual disk, then fail over to the disk that has the most available space and start writing those files there. And now how does this system respond if you were, say, to slot in a couple of new drives or uh, you know, put in one that's maybe six terabytes and another that's two terabytes? Right. So the only, the only thing you have to do is make sure that the drive you're using for parity is at least as big as the largest drive that you're using for data. Is there a migration? Can you move parity drives? You can. You can now spread across, ah. um, spread the parity across multiple drives. So you could spread it out, and then you could reclaim that parity drive as one of your storage drives. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So. Yes. Yes. And you know, let's imagine that I have this terrible situation where two disks fail, and I've only got one parity drive. Yeah. So I can't recover the whole array. But the two disks that I have left, because they're just file systems, I have that data on those disks. You know, there's no special file system or RAID mechanism behind that. That data is just accessible to me. I can just plug that into an external oh, of course. Right. USB adapter and just suck that data off. So It's extended for or whatever. Yeah, exactly so. Yeah. Huh. Um, but yes, if you want to add another drive, you just plug the disk in, you add, you format it, you mount it somewhere, and then you put in the SnapRaid configuration. Um, hard disk five is in this location and that's it. It's, it's very, very simple. That does sound simple. And it's surprisingly fast as well. So again, because this is home stuff, um, I have these arrays hooked up over USB three even. Right, because you're not you're not even looking for like super high performance. You're looking for storage. Yeah, but even over USB three, I'm pushing 170 megabytes a second hey. um, across the array. So not, not too shabby. No, what kind of hardware is that? It's their their IC Dock Black Vortex um, uh, enclosures connected over just regular USB three to a. No, NUC. I mean, is it like an i seven machine or is it a NUC? It's a, it's a NUC with um, <laughs> a, you know, a mobile <laughs> chip, uh, a mobile i seven. So it's a quad core, <laughs> not bad, mobile i seven. That sounds like a perfect home server for what you're going for. That's a great setup. Well, that that piques my interest. Wimpy, thank you for sharing with the class. And uh, we'll have links to the projects that Wimpy talked about with their documentation in the show notes, linuxunplugged.com slash 277. And he also went into some detail in the Ubuntu podcast. So go check that out. And uh, I am uh, definitely looking at SnapRaid. I wanted to mention for uh, anybody that's listening the week that this comes out, or if you're listening live right now, I don't exactly know what happened, but Linux Academy decided to extend the uh, two ninety nine per year deal, which makes it twenty four bucks a month to get Linux Academy to, for five more days as we record this. Um, I think on Cyber Monday, like the the, the sign up page went down or something because of everybody trying to get the deal. So they're like, "All right, well," and it was only like I mean they freaked out because it was like it was like twenty minutes, right? It wasn't like a huge, but they're like, "We're going to extend it for five more days." I think that's I think that's what happened, but it's a great deal, and if you didn't jump on it. You're saving 33%. And the reason I mention that is because they obviously don't pay us. Well, I mean, they pay us, but they don't They don't ask me to do these ads. But that I know what they have in the works. So if you get it at 24 bucks a month, that's, that's going to be worth it for a long time because it stays at that price. Lock it in. You can lock it in. Well, the big news this week really is that the Fedora Project is considering canceling or maybe you should say significantly delaying the release of Fedora 31. So following the release of Fedora 30 in May, the project is considering essentially hitting the pause button for a year, skipping the traditional 31 release cycle and working on themselves, retooling and those kinds of things. It's it's one of those that they've gone through in the past when they began doing additions And it's one that comes at a kind of precarious time. So we thought the best route to go would be to get it from the horse's mouth, as they say, and bring the project lead on the show and chat with Matthew Miller. Matthew, welcome back to the show, and thanks for joining us on the Unplugged program. Hey, Chris. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are glad to have you on a day where we're trying to parse the news that it sounds like there is a proposal in the works to essentially bump the 31 release, hang out on 30 for a while, while the back-end, I guess, infrastructure, really, of the Fedora project is retooled. Can you explain really what is being proposed? That's my understanding, but 
what's going on from like your actual horse's mouth words? <laughs> yeah, that that's basically it. And I don't know if you remember back to five years ago, we actually did this one time before and they worked out, they worked out okay. Um, a lot of the problem is uh, we have, you know, a six month release cycle and a lot of the people who work on our Fedora infrastructure also are people who are engaged in the like the business of getting that release out the door, the release engineering, the infrastructure stuff that I mean, makes the bits ship, uh, QA and QA tooling and things like that. And so um, as we're going on that rapid cycle, uh, a lot of technical debt accumulates. We get a lot of Band-Aids put on things that are problems and not enough time to fix it. And then just... Um, because you know we're, this is Fedora 30, we're talking about working on now. There have been a lot of releases, and a lot of our tools have grown organically in the last 15 years. And so, um, some of the things are scripts that have another script that they run, and that script does some <laughs> other things. So there's a lot of um, redundancy, and you know performance isn't so good. So specifically, one of the things that's a problem. When we do a compose, that basically takes all the software in Fedora. It, the packages are already built, but they're put together into one tree that, uh, and then uh, put into the different images for you making Fedora server, for making Fedora workstation, and then for making all of our various spins, KDE, desktop, the Python lab, the Docker image, all those things. That's the compose. And that's one big monolithic process. And... Um, we were up to that taking something like 18 hours to run. Wow. Although there've been, there's been some improvements in that, but so now it's down to like 12, <laughs> um, but 12 is a very long time. So that means, you know, for making a change um, to getting it actually to a place where we, where our QA can test it takes a day. And so as we're putting out a release that can get very frustrating because let's say we're going to, we want to sign off on a release on Thursday. Well, in order for QA to have time, that release needs you know, ready on Wednesday morning, which means it needs to be kicked off on Tuesday, uh. which means we basically have during that whole last week, two chances, <laughs> Monday and Tuesday, to get changes in, um, which leads to, you know, 20 changes or 50 changes being put in all at once, which is not very scientific. Um, and if something messes up, too bad, we have to delay for a week. Um, so... Getting that composed time down, I think the proposal uh, aims for an hour, which is nicely ambitious, but even getting it down to four hours. So during you know one normal workday, you could start off a compose and then if something goes wrong, do another one uh, would be a radical improvement. Sure. So that's one of the things, but they're kind of um, a, a lot of things in our processes that are kind of like that, where it seems like taking some time to look at it and focus on actually improving the tooling and processes would be worthwhile. Now, I uh, I noted too in the pretty well written problem statement that's on the wiki that it says currently Fedora can't scale for more community ownership of the things we release. Only a few people can build and push our releases. Is is that is that also a team retooling problem? There, it, to me, when I read that, it sounds like perhaps the Fedora project is seeking to be able to independently release bits of software they cannot currently independently release. Yeah, and some of it's a process thing. Some of it's actually tooling because, like the the tooling to do this, literally has no permission structure. So it's a you can build everything or you can build nothing. And so having the tooling being a little bit smarter about who can do what, uh, not because we don't trust people, but just so you don't accidentally, you know, you know, rebuild KDE when you went to meant to rebuild XFCE and then <laughs> it caused trouble. Like it doesn't have that fine grain thing. Um, and again, because it's all one big compose, basically, it's just a, you could trigger the compose, but you couldn't say uh, build XFCE. Right. And that's one of the things we actually, like our XFCE spin um, didn't get built properly for the final release for Fedora 29, which was bad because we've got a lot of people who love XFCE and we want that. Right. You know, even though that's not our main offering, we want that to be successful for people. I don't know what's the matter with them, but they just stick to it. They, they just, sure do. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, you, you like your interface as it is. It's very personal. So it's important for people to have. There's really those. only one XFCE user out there. I'm giving a hard time and he knows who he is. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> actually, some of the Fedora infrastructure team actually have XFCE users. So it was yeah, go close, close to home. <laughs> I bet. I bet. 
Well, okay, so speaking of XFCE and other sort of user-facing things, what does all this internal infrastructure process work mean for user-facing features? Fedora's doing a lot of stuff, in particular I'm thinking of things like Silverblue. Does that mean these are going to be delayed, or will that work continue side by side? Yeah, no, um, that's a that that's a hard thing with this. And yeah, uh, I think we've done a really good job of getting onto our six-month cadence and making that fire successfully. So I actually have a little bit of skepticism about this plan of stopping things. So I want to make sure that if we do this, we have a good plan in place for you know making sure that we actually succeed to the things we want to fix. Mm. And then also that we don't break things for people who have become accustomed to and happy with having fast Fedora releases and good upgrades. I mean, and, that seems like a key point. If if you're going to take this break, it's really got to be worth it. Yeah. Because um, I look at the market right now and I see there's going to be some uncertainty around the future of Fedora, misplaced or not. Uh, but also really like on the desktop side, that could potentially mean skipping a GNOME release cycle, which uh, is kind of like a hard time to miss a GNOME release cycle right now because so many great fixes are landing in GNOME. Yeah, Um and you know we like we did do this with Fedora twenty release, yeah, and I right. think um, that was I think we put GNOME as a copper to update to oh. ah. mixed, mixed mixed results there. We we could do something like that again. Flatbacks, yeah. Put put all of GNOME in a flatback. <laughs> so, uh, you watch, it's uh, going to happen. <laughs> yeah. One one of the things we have now that we didn't is this modularity system, which lets us have two different versions of things. So uh-huh. one idea is to make a GNOME module so uh, users could opt in to the newer version using the modularity. That seems brilliant, um, actually. Yeah, um, and that's kind of what modularity was made for. So it's also a good test for, hey, can modularity do something major like this? Let's make sure it can. Uh, and then for something like Silverblue, which is more on the experimental side, um, the Silverblue OS tree compose could just pick the newer module. So Silverblue could ah. you know, have the newer version of things. So we could have a more conservative and a more aggressive uh, release. And then the idea would be to maintain the 30 packages for that whole year. Um, so, 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 I mean, in some ways, as a perhaps as a server user, Fedora 30 could be a great release because it's going to be, a, in some ways, an extra long supported version of Fedora. Is that true? Yeah, if this proposal goes through. And yeah, yeah. And we actually see that in our stats for um, the, the Fedora 19 and 20 releases, which ended up having you know longer cycle because of this. Um, those were very, very popular releases and still continue to, you know, there's a long tail of people who should upgrade but never have um, who are still using those releases. And I think that that extra year um, definitely helped with that. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, that's a side effect as well. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. One thing that stood out to me in some of the top level proposals here is defining a base platform. And maybe this is something Red Hat wants to see some focus on, but we were curious, what does that mean? Yeah, um, so uh, I'll talk about it from a Red Hat hat on for a little bit here. Just slightly, if you looked at the um, RHEL 8 beta at all, one of the things that Red Hat did is split into a base OS and an app stream where they can have different life cycles. And things are different in Fedora, but the basic concept kind of of is helpful. One of the things in Fedora, um, I don't know if you followed all of Fedora's history, but one of the important good moves was... Uh, merging together Fedora Core, which came from Red Hat Linux, and Fedora Extras, which was kind of the community thing, into one big community project. That was great and really good for Fedora and helped Fedora grow and become something that was really a whole community distribution rather than something that was just a corporate thing that the community could build stuff on the fringes. So that was great. But one of the outcomes of that is that Fedora is one gigantic repository of undifferentiated packages where some little um, little toy thing that I am interested in playing with is important to me. But if it breaks, like five users will care and I'm one of them, uh, that is undifferentiated from, you know, something like glibc in the distribution or, you know, GNOME or the things that if, if it if it breaks, uh, a lot of people will have their systems not work. And so we, and I've, I've been talking about this, you know, since before as Fedora project leader with the Fedora rings idea, right. basically make, making different policy levels for some of our pack. All of our packages are important, but some of them kind of need a, need a focus in QA. And we've never had a defined set of, we, we've got some that are like critical path, but it's kind of a loose definition of getting up to boot. 
But uh, some packages that we basically say, this is a QA'd set of packages together that, you know, maybe if we're looking at doing a longer term maintenance kind of situation, these are the ones we'd focus on. Um, if we want to make sure, you know, QA focuses on these things. So sort of narrowing down from our whatever 15,000 package package set to something like a thousand packages that we can really focus on polish on, hmm. I think is a good idea. That strikes me too, that it might provoke a few deeper conversations within the project about what's our focus and what is what does it mean to ship this set of packages and things like that. So that could be, that could be a really fascinating event to watch. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things, uh, focus is definitely important. We, we want to make it so that you know, kind of the core resources of the project are focused on this uh, enabling core package set and that people who do have those other cares um, can can focus on their part of it and not have to worry about the base part you know, falling apart on them, but they can also focus their energy on the thing they care about and develop solutions on top of that and give that to users. So we should keep in mind that at this stage, as we record this episode, th- this uh, taking some time to refocus on the tools is in most part just a proposal at this stage. So what happens next? What process does this proposal go through to either become reality or get rejected? Yeah. So one one of the key things here is like there's not secret room cabals in Fedora deciding things. So a lot of these things, um, you know, are, are, you're seeing the process in action. So when somebody proposes it, that means they had in, this is an idea that several people have, have worked on. Um, one of the things we have in Fedora is the idea of an objective. And so, uh, an objective is something that the Fedora council, our leadership body has said, this is an area we think the project needs to focus on. So we have, an objective around the Fedora lifecycle and the Fedora, you know, Fedora um, long-term uh, maintenance possibilities. Fedora, uh, uh, if you go to Fedora Project uh, docs at fedoraproject.org and look under the project docs, um, I can I can provide an actual link for this. Okay. There's a section about our different objectives there, and you can find link to documentation. So this this particular proposal came out of out of that objective because there are people looking at sort of these problems. Uh, and so uh, the general process is you will have this community discussion and then the Fedora Council will talk about it and the Fedora Council will probably give a kind of a non-technical heads up, uh, yes or no, we like this, this idea. Um, and the Fedora Council consists of me, community uh Community Action and Impact Coordinator, Brian Exelbeard, uh, some elected people from the community, and then also people selected uh, by different committees to be on the council. And so it kind of gives an overview of the whole, you know, we, we try to take the input from the whole project and reflect that um, into a, a definitive decision. And then um, also because this is an engineering uh, decision, um, the engineering committee will probably also want to give a yes or no to this. So that that's basically the processes we'll go through. It'll be interesting to watch that unfold. Um, and how how do you feel about it personally? Not yeah, I know as as somebody who sits atop of this project and has been watching it now for I think what is a record breaking run, uh, what do you think? Is this a necessary delay? Is this something that's sort of like taking your medicine? Yeah, so uh, like as I said before, I've got mixed feelings about it. I feel really good that we've gotten ourselves onto a well firing, you know, um, Mother's Day Halloween release cadence, um, which has always been our goal, but we've sometimes <laughs> yep. slipped off of that. Every now and then. Um, right. So I, I, I'm, you know, we uh, hit our, our target schedule a couple times in a row now. That's awesome. Um, so just when we've got that going, seems like maybe not the best time to mess <laughs> I mean, it up. The joke almost you, makes itself at this point. Yeah, I'm not making it. I'm just saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I've got I, I've got some skepticism about it. On the other hand, I think it it did work for us when we did that Fedora 20 release, and I think the problems are real. Um, the the compose problem has been something that's been frustrating to me for a while. So spending some time to tackle it seems worthwhile, but I also do want to make sure that we, you know, keep the concerns, you know, the upstream GNOME community is concerned. I, I'm proud of Fedora as a premier GNOME distribution. I want to keep that. Sure. Um, and I want to make sure that, you know, people who are packagers who aren't involved in all of the day-to-day, you know, the release stuff are able to keep, 
getting their work to users and don't feel like they're blocked for a year from getting the things they're worked on out to people. So, um, yeah, it's a balance. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, maybe we can check. Maybe we can check in at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. I, I I'm really. I have uh, been following the project with more and more interest. He is at Matt DM on Twitter, and we will have links to uh, the problem documents they have in the wiki, as well as the mailing list and the docs that uh, Matthew just mentioned. There is there anywhere else you want to send folks before we run? Um, you know, getfedora.org is always a great place to check out if you don't have Fedora already installed. <laughs> yeah, do it. Good answer. Good answer, man. Matthew, thank you for coming on the show. You know, one of the things he touched on there that is a little more obvious if you follow the links in our show notes is this is the result of a larger objective they set a while ago as a project. And this is how they as a project think they can achieve the objective that they set for themselves. And it's kind of in a broader context. It's something that um, I know every project struggles with these tooling issues sometimes. But at the same time, you're like, this is such a such a prescient time to take off because um, everyone else is moving fast. There's really lots fast. of good releases. Yeah, and there's a lot of good fixes coming down the pipe to GNOME that uh, you know people are going to want. So I think they're going to have to come up with a way to get fresh GNOME to Fedora users. At least I, I would think. Otherwise, people uh, might get a wandering eye and go to a distribution that's maybe shipping patches with performance fixes or something. Uh, but we'll see. Um, you know, we have uh, we have been talking about a predictions episode, and we actually nailed down a date and time. Oh, and by the way, again, thank you to Matthew for coming on the show. No it's kidding. really nice to just get it from him. We don't have to speculate, you know, and just understand it's a proposal right now. Um, but yeah, so uh, moving on, uh, we will be recording a special edition of the Unplugged, our special edition of the Unplugged program. Do you remember? Oh yeah, I do remember what the dates are. So we'll be doing a predictions episode, and I kind of feel like... I kind of feel like maybe we should do the predictions episode while it's still 2018. That seems appropriate. Yeah, so I that, agree. So instead of doing, see, Linux Unplugged uh, gets the holiday hammer. It It is on Christmas Day and New Year's Day, the 25th and the 1st. So it's both our, our live days. So what we're going to do, and I know this is difficult for some of you, but I'm hoping maybe it'll open up for others, is we're just going to move the show one day. So it'll be on Wednesday for those weeks. So it'll be the day after Christmas, and it'll be the day after New Year's, so the 26th and the 2nd. Same time, just just move it one day. So on the 26th, we're going to do our predictions for 2019. And uh, if you really have a great prediction and you have good audio, I invite you to record a clip and then uh, tweet it to me, and I will try to include it in the show, but if you can't make it. But otherwise, our mumble room will be open. You can be here as part of our great virtual council and uh, make your predictions and pontifications for 2019. And then you will have world fame if uh, you nail it, because we will try to review them the following year to see how we all did. So that'll be on the 26th. And then on the 2nd, Maybe if you're still in party mode, join us for the Mumble Room extravaganza where we will do what we want to see. Wishes, reviews yeah, of what happened. Hope for. You don't have to be realistic in this here more fun episode. That one's a little more like low-key laid back. Like you're not going to get reviewed. And we're going to be also doing like look back at some of our favorite stories and be doing like the, like the if I had a magic wand and I could make Project XYZ do ABC – I would do it and and see it. And then we consider and go, that's a great idea because it would mean more users come on board. Like it's a fun thing to do. Uh, so those will be just moving one day from our regularly bat time on our, but it'll be on the same bat channel, right? Is that, is that, that I, was yeah, the message? There's a lot of bats involved. So if you're scared of bats, watch out. But otherwise, just Ooh. come. It's a great time. You're probably going to get sick of your family anyway. Or maybe you're you know, all, all by yourself and we'll be your family for but a day. Our, our plan is to try to have something for you to listen to over the holidays. Um, because it's nice when, uh, you know, not every, we get like the lowest downloads ever, but it's like for me, like if I'm ever in a situation where it's like, a, it's like all of a sudden I have like a bunch of time in the, in the car because I'm traveling for the holiday or like sometimes I have like these weird gaps in my schedule where it's like been rush, 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 rush for the holiday. And then all of a sudden I find myself without kids, without my significant other. It's like, I got a I got half a day to burn. And then when nobody's releasing stuff, it's kind of a bummer. So we thought, let's try to stick with it this year and uh, we'll just bump the schedule a bit. So it'll be out a day later those weeks, but there will be a show. And if you're, if you go to linuxunplug.com slash subscribe, you can just grab the episode automatically and don't have to worry about it. You can also go to jupiterbroadcasting.com and check out the calendar yep. if you forget just when that's happening. 
Well, really quickly, one last item on the agenda. It's that Dropbox quote-unquote hack I've been using. I, I mean, ultimately, this is a temporary fix. In fact, big disclaimer here, I mean, this could potentially even lead to data loss. So don't do what Chris does, okay? Is that fair? Can we make that disclaimer? Don't do as Chris does. But I'm using the Dropbox file system fix project. And the thing I like about this is it lets you run Dropbox and any damn encryption or any damn file system you please. And I think that's what's important. It essentially fixes the file system detection in the Linux client to restore the sync capability. So bear in mind, it's doing some trickery here. And if they introduce something in the future to the Dropbox client, you could have some problems. Oh, yeah. As you might suspect, this is an LD preload trick. So you uh, you have to run make. You got to build yourself a little .so from the included C. And then it provides a separate Python script that will start Dropbox with the custom library. So if right. it's making ext4 assumptions that aren't just what file system is this, right. there could be issues. But so far, it sounds like it's working for you. Yeah, it's been fine. Um, and I did have to build it, and then I had to disable Dropbox from starting at startup. And then I essentially just created a new desktop launcher and added that to my startup items. So the Python script is kicked off that way. It's fine. It's been working good. It's been going for about half a week. Survived a couple of reboots just fine. So I'll do this as I transition off. Oh, I might do what Wimpy did and might toss it on a headless box somewhere. And that'll be how I begin the transition to something else. A hacky solution to a problem we should never have had. Yeah, I've sent them my feedback. They know how I feel, Wes. So uh, also a little plug here for the TechSnap show. TechSnap.Systems, Wes Payne and myself are doing a show over there that if you're in the IT field, if you are a sysadmin, if uh, you work on servers or on the cloud and want somebody to commiserate with, uh, hear about uh, particular topics like WireGuard, eBPF, uh, what's some other things we've done recently? Boy, we did. We had a great breakdown of the whole Spectre meltdown stuff when that came out. Like this, the, the show is just famous for doing the deep dives. And uh, we're gearing it up to do even more. We'll have more details about that soon. So check out techsnap.systems because there's a lot of good stuff going on over there and even more coming. And then... Go check out The Gentleman Show, Ubuntu podcast, my favorite show that's not a Jupiter Broadcasting show that's not late night Linux. Because <laughs> I love all I love all. Careful now, careful I, know, I have to be really careful. It's a little awkward. <laughs> but I try. All of our brothers and arms. <laughs> go check that out, UbuntuPodcast.org. And go check out Late Night Linux, too, because they're doing some great work over there. Thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode. You are always welcome to join us live, hang out in that mumble room, chat with Wes and I. Oh, please do. Because we miss you already. You get a little pre-show and you get a little post-show in the released version, but there's probably 30 times more than what actually gets released. And to be honest, we say all the best things when, true. We're, when we're not in the room. Especially when I'm cursing about YouTube. Oh, it gets me so fired up. Anyways, that's all for this week. Check out all our links at linuxunplugged.com slash 277. I'm at Chris Elias. He's at West Paint. Thank you for joining us. See you next Tuesday. Unplugged show. Oh man, 277, rapidly approaching the 300. Oh, digging the dough. Wimpy, before you leave tonight, I have I have a problem, and I want to know if you've experienced this. I think it might be because I went with the GPU dock. A little bit of real time GPU dock follow up. I've got the I've got a vertical monitor and a horizontal monitor at 2K resolution hooked up over DisplayPort, and ever since I've done that my window performance has gone in the tank. Like, on my main laptop, the quote-unquote prime display, it's fine, it's butter smooth. But on the external monitors, it's choppy, it's laggy, like, resizing windows is jittery. It's, even my typing is sometimes stuttery. It's it's way worse than I expected. Have you had this problem? Is this a... I have not experienced oh, that, no. Oh, it's got to be something with that multiple GPU setup then. I would think it's it's all using the NVIDIA because I can manage the panels with the NVIDIA control panel. So it's all going through the uh -huh. NVIDIA, and it should be able to handle three displays. Yeah, it should. Um, I've only ever run two until recently, though. Um, and obviously the third display that I now have is the, uh, a panel on the laptop. Um, but no, I've not experienced that. I've only experienced that when I've moved a game off of the prime display sure. into 
you know, an IGP powered display and that's expected, but you've got one and you've got, I've never also, I, I also run both of mine, um, landscape. I haven't done that mix of mm, portrait yeah. and landscape. Hmm. Yeah. So the, and I've noticed like 3d performance on the prime main laptop display still seems perfectly fine. I can play a game and have those other displays with displaying stuff. Um, and it's good enough. Like if I put things, it's fairly static, like chats and even a YouTube video is fine. But if I want to resize a window or start typing it, sometimes just can't keep up and I just don't understand what's going on. And I've, I've wondered if it's a plasma problem even, um, but I doubt it, but I've, I've heard that there's issues with plasma and NVIDIA doing multiple monitors. I, I'm not going to switch to GNOME over this because like I said, it's butter smooth on the main display. And again, I can't speak to anything other than Mate because that's the only, any desktop that I've used. I want to try it though. Tell you what, it has made me think about doing a live disc and just seeing. Does, you this, probably should. I mean, oh, but what if it's fine? Just, I'm not switching. And then what do I do? We, can, we, we can tweak it from there. It's, I mean, for science's sake, I got to know. Okay. All right. Thanks, Wes. 